Alright, so if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Titus chapter 1. Now, as you are on your way there, using your Bible app, your phone, whatever it is, that's totally cool. Uh, we do have some chairs kind of interspersed, or some here in the front too, for those who are in the back, uh, if you're looking for that. Uh, really quick disclaimer, uh, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. Thank you, Smoking the Bandit. So, um... Uh, I don't even know if we'll make it through everything that I hope we make it through today, but we're going to try. And and I'm I'm saying all of this as a disclaimer, especially for those who may be guests with us this morning. Again, we're glad that you are here. Uh, This is a little bit of an interesting Sunday and an interesting series for us because in a lot of ways we're bundling a number of things. So we're going through the book of Titus very slowly. Uh, I think we're at verse 5 on week 5. Yep, we're on pace. Um, and so uh, uh, this is kind of what we're doing, but we're, we're also combining this with what is our membership class. We are a new church. Uh, we want to figure out the best way to kind of do the membership class for a large number of people. And so this particular portion of the series is our membership class. And so basically, if you think you might want to be a member here at Redemption Church, you go through those five Sundays that started last Sunday, you go all the way through the five sections, or you can go online and watch and kind of catch up that way. And then at the end of that, we'll have a little card that you can fill out saying, yes, I want to be a member. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. And that makes it a little bit interesting when you get to to certain topics where basically it's that thing that we need to discuss, we need to work through and walk through, but it may not be the most preaching-oriented kind of message. And it has to do not simply with church membership, but more importantly, church government. Yay! All right, so... um, like right now, I know what's going on. You're going, he just said church government. Where's my phone? I'm playing Angry Birds until this is over, all right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm checking the scores. I'm making my Thanksgiving menu. I am, you know, I, I get it. I, you know what? In a lot of ways, I, I feel the same way. It's like as soon as I hear church government, I go, oh, man, that's that necessary evil, right? That's just that thing you have to have. And I think part of that is driven by the, the, the reality that we have probably all heard of or seen uh, occasions where church government is bad, broken, wrong, irritating, frustrating in the way of Jesus, in the way of the gospel, in the way of the kingdom. I've seen that. You've seen that. We don't like that. We get that. We get that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a time and a place, and it doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't designed the church to function in certain ways. And so as we even talk about this, we want to realize that it doesn't have to be the Oh, uh, that's just that human side of church. In fact, if anything, I would stretch out and say, if looked at properly, if looked at biblically, man, this is a way in which we worship Jesus, we praise Jesus, we appreciate Jesus, and we obey Jesus. By looking and saying, Jesus, how do you want your church to function? What do you want your church to look like? How should it operate in the world for your name and for your glory? And see, in a lot of ways, that's exactly why uh, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete, right? I mean, he's getting to that, and that's why it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you there on Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. He says, I want you to see order in the church, and order in the church is a good thing. And the Bible speaks often about order in the church, about the structure and style of of the church. In fact, if you were to simply read your New Testament through, you would find that the New Testament speaks more to how a church should operate than it speaks to marriage or parenting or family combined. 
it says a lot about the topic. And I believe there's a lot of reasons why the topic is so strong, why it comes up, why Titus needs to set things in order. Again, remember the island of Crete. The island of Crete is like Tortuga in Pirates of the Caribbean, all right? It is. If you've ever ridden the ride, all right, that's Crete. You're just riding through Crete, all right? It's called Pirates of the Caribbean. It's really the Mediterranean, all right? So that's Crete. Right? It's drinking, cussing, shooting, smoking, just the grandmas, and then everybody else has their problems too, right? So, right? So because of that, there needs to be this sense of order and priority and understanding what Jesus wants, because again, it can get really crazy. It can get like Lord of the Flies, but adults with alcohol. That's not good, right? Not good at all, right? Or, you know, so it's like, okay. You need to know what's going on. And I think that's true to all churches. I mean, when, when he says, I'm leaving you on Crete to set in order what remains, that's not just in one town on Crete. It's in every city where there's a church, as we're going to see, uh, there's to be order. And I believe there's a universal parallel to that where all churches are have some level of structure and order. Now, as we go through that, there's going to be this tendency in us as we try to look through the New Testament and understand this to go, well, is that familiar to me? Or is that comfortable to me? Or is that sensible to me? And those are all understandable things. But the main priority that we really have as a church is if the structure is biblical. Biblical, right? This is the book we care about. I have opinions on how the church should operate, but they don't fit in this book. They don't fit with this book, and so I ditch them. Right? Because the heart is this. And I want you to know that the leadership of the church has prayed, fasted, studied, agonized, prayed and fasted some more, agonized, dialogued, discussed, debated, and then come to this sense of, yeah, that's what we really believe the New Testament communicates on leadership on the church, on its structure, that kind of thing. And so that's really what is born out of a lot of our effort is what you're hearing this morning. Now, because we're so limited this morning, uh, we have a much larger document. If you go to the website tomorrow, uh, we'll have that posted online. Uh, it's about a 60-page little book that I wrote a while back, and it kind of outlines the details of a lot of this more. So you can go, oh, that's... And it's just really a New Testament study of the church, and so you can look at it that way. But we're going to hit some of the highlights today, try to understand the spirit of all of this and how a church is ordered. Now, last week, we looked at the definition of a local church, and I want to read it again because it's important. Because, again, what makes a church a church? It says, a local church is a group of people who are chosen in God the Father, regenerate in God the Holy Spirit, and redeemed in God the Son, Jesus Christ, whom they confess as Lord. All of that is important. It says, in obedience to the Scriptures, they organize under qualified leadership, gathering regularly for worship and preaching, observing the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion under the unity of the gospel and the power of grace for the purpose of true godliness so as to scatter into the world with the commission and commandment that Jesus left to his missionary church for his glory and their joy. Those are our marching orders. Those are the minimums, right? That's just what is true for a local church to be a local church. And all of that you can find tags throughout the New Testament. So again, a lot of said. And so if we try to take this and we put it into an org chart, Jesus' org chart for the local church looks something like this. We'll bring it up on the screen. There you go. That's Jesus' org chart. Jesus has got an org chart. He's got a notepad. He puts it down. This is what it looks like. 
according to the New Testament. It starts in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That was the beginning of our definition of the church. They all contribute to the church, but the church is uniquely Jesus' church. Because he bled out for it. He died for it. He has an intimacy to it. The church is in Jesus. That's why our standing is by grace alone, not by our works, because of Jesus. And then from Jesus, he has elders and deacons, and then he has the congregation, or kind of we could call it the membership. We talked last week about membership. We said membership is not a biblical commandment, but it is a blessing. It is a benefit, especially for those who identify a local church as their church. From there, you have people who attend and say, it's not really my church, but I like it. Maybe they're saved, maybe they're not. And in Jesus' org chart, the world is also involved. Jesus came to save the world. He died for the sins of humanity, so the world's in his org chart. All of this matters to us as a church. And as we communicate these things and try to, to grapple with them and understand them, where we always wanted to start is with Jesus. We say it's all about Jesus. That is the motto of us as a church. And so Jesus is at the top of our org chart. And there's a reason. He is the senior pastor of the church. Jesus is the senior pastor of all churches. He is just simply the senior pastor. And so when we look at the org chart of the church, it starts with saying Jesus is the senior pastor pastor. If you look at an org chart and it starts with a committee, it starts with a board, it starts with a head, it starts with a bishop, it starts with whatever, that is not the best org chart for the church. It works great for a business, works great for some other nonprofit organization, some charity, that's great. But when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is clear that Jesus is the senior pastor. In fact, nowhere in the Bible, I challenge you to read the entire Bible to find any place where a person, a man, is called the senior pastor. It doesn't exist. There is no, I am not the senior pastor. No human being can fulfill the role of senior pastor in the church. In fact, the only time the Bible speaks of a senior pastor, it speaks of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's writing to the church there. So he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder... Uh, Verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And when the chief shepherd, literally the senior or ruling pastor appears, you will receive the unfailing crown of glory. There are elders, and then there's a senior pastor. The Bible says the senior pastor is? Thank you. All right. That was really excited. I love that. So that's exactly Jesus. We get that straight. It's Jesus. In fact, also Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again, brought us again from the dead through our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, literally the mega pastor of the sheep. And he goes on to talk about some things. Jesus is the mega pastor. I love that. Mega pastor, right? Because he's got a mega church. You look at mega churches that have like 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. His mega church, 1.8 billion right now. Pretty mega church. Right? Yeah, no, it's cool. Clap for Jesus, right? I mean, it's true. He's got a mega church. And then all of history in heaven is a part of his mega church. And he is the mega church pastor. He is the senior pastor, the sole exclusive head pastor of the church. I can't make this a big enough issue. And see, here's why this is important to me. I think uh, sometimes Jesus is treated as the icon of the church. Like, the reason the church exists 
but we don't actually believe he's involved. Right? We don't really believe that. We go, yeah, yeah, we'll do it for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But come on, he lives in heaven and we're down here. Right? Like he's just outsourced the whole gig. See, I think there's a lot of times where Jesus isn't at the board meeting because they didn't invite him. I mean, really, I honestly think that. I think Jesus has a lot more say in the church, but if the leadership that he employs doesn't seek him and search for him and contemplate the scriptures and pray and fast and they're they're not desperate for him, then you know what they're doing? In essence, they're not inviting him. They're saying, no, we, we put him on the poster at the front door. We exist for that guy. Well, how often does he show up? I don't know. How often do you consult him? Whenever it fits. See, I, I believe it needs to be the conviction of the local church that Jesus really is involved. That he opens churches, that he closes churches, that he blesses churches, that he spanks churches. And therefore, the leadership of the church should be desperate to interact with their senior pastor. To let their senior pastor lead and guide and that kind of thing. Because Jesus really is the senior pastor. And as senior pastor, then Jesus has a staff. And his staff starts with elders. In fact, looking there again at Titus 1.5, he says, This is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And, he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, to order the church means to figure out the vision, values, and vibe based on a biblical, missional idea, right? What's the Bible say? Why does the church exist? Right? That's the order of the church. But then he says, I want you to have elders in every church who can maintain and shepherd and care for and protect that order under me as your senior pastor. That's the heart behind having elders, and so I want to unpack really quick what, what exactly, and we're going to do this in a lot of ways, but this word elder, all right? Because there's a little bit of confusion at times because there's different words in the New Testament. You have elders, you go, well, there's something. And, and then you have another word, which is overseers, and that's another idea, right? And then you also have the word pastors. And that's probably the most familiar to a lot of us, this idea of, of a pastor. Now, now, here's the thing about the word pastor or shepherd. It can mean either thing. Uh, that is the least common word in the New Testament to describe church leadership. It doesn't come up very often. Actually, the most common word is the word elder. And then the next common is overseer. And, and people look at these three different words and they go, well, what, what's, the, what's the difference? You know, is an elder like the top tier and then under elders or pastors and under pastors or overseers or, you know, how does that work or anything like that? Here's the bottom line. Here's the simple way to put it. Elders are overseers who pastor. All right? That's it. In other words, all three words are just synonymous with each other. It's the same person doing different things. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a husband. Right? Jesus is senior pastor and as so he is prophet, priest, and king. Right? One guy, three things. I'm one guy. I have three different roles in my life. For the local church, you have three different labels. One that really deals with office, one that deals with function, one that deals with attitude or spirit. But all three are describing the same person. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 
He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow, fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds or pastors of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Elders, pastors, overseers, right? It's just the, the same people just functioning in different ways. I mean, this is something I think that, that we understand. And so when we look at these labels, we realize he's talking about a particular person or persons that sort of multitask in the context of the church for the glory of Jesus, for the praise of Jesus, uh, for the, the, the mission of Jesus. And so in that sense, I, you know, kind of looking at our church, uh, I would be an elder, I would be an overseer, and I'd be a pastor. And, and if you look at some of the other people on our, our, our team, you look at Byron Smith, he is an elder, he's an overseer, and he's a pastor. Right? This is true to every elder within the church. They're to do all those things, which means the bar on elders, whether they're paid or volunteer, and we'll get into that in a little while, is a very high bar. Where it's more than just coming to a board meeting and making decisions once a month and calling it done. It means there's an investment, there's an ownership, there is something more deeply embedded. And so I want to kind of look at that a little bit by asking the first question, who are Jesus's elders? Or maybe a different way to put it, who should be? Jesus' elders according to the New Testament. The first thing is this. It should be those drawn by Jesus and His Spirit. It should be those drawn. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, 1, it says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In Acts 20, 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, sometimes when a church says, hey, we need to figure out who's going to be on the board, right? Uh, we'll go, well, who has the business skills? Who has the experience? Who's the young blood? Who's the old blood? Whatever our models are. And those aren't bad things. Those are fine. But the very first place it begins is, who feels led to being an elder? Like, led. Because I, I love the way it says it here, aspires. Uh, that word means to stretch out for, right? To stretch out for. And then he says, and desires. It's passionate compulsion. It's where it's like, I just really feel like God is drawing me to this. If somebody says, hey, I'm willing to be an elder, we'd say, willing is not strong enough. Well, if you don't have anybody else, hey, I'll do it. No. That's not what, 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 what a church needs. What a church needs are those the Holy Spirit has compelled. Who say, I feel led to. I feel the sense of calling. I feel the sense of draw that is so beyond myself. Say, so we say that for, for, for paid pastors a lot. Well, when did you sense the calling? Which is a weird question. i got to tell you I, I don't even, you know, I don't know when somebody told me. I don't know. It's like, it can be a little bit of a weird thing, but but I get what people are asking, and what we're saying is that should be true for all elders and pastors within the church. Not just the paid ones, but the volunteer ones, because it's a calling. And so we start and we say, well, first off, it's those drawn by Jesus and his spirit, because his spirit is what makes elders. Here's the deal. Uh, never in, 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 in this church, I, I can guarantee you, in this church, we will never look at it and say, all right, who do we want to groom to be an elder we don't do that. We, we just don't do that. Here's, here's, here's the question. Who is the Holy Spirit set apart as an elder that we need to discover? 
they're just an elder. They're, they're just gifted. They're just called to this. We're just trying to figure out who those individuals are. But we don't, we don't make elders. We don't create elders. That's what Jesus does. We identify elders. And so those drawn by Jesus and his spirit. The next thing about elders, it's those motivated because of Jesus. Again, 1 Peter 5 is kind of a staging ground for us, but it says there, to the elders among you, he appeals as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. There are good motives in being a leader in the church. There are bad motives in being a leader in the church. And those with bad motives should not be leaders. And the leaders of the church should guard against those with bad motives in any way they can. In any way they can. I mean, I, I love the descriptions there because, again, if somebody says, well, I, I want to be, be an elder because I want to, to have some say-so on where the church is going, probably not the best motive. If somebody says, well, I want to be an elder because I want to make sure that there's somebody there to be the devil's advocate. Why do you want to be his friend? Really? I mean, like, I honestly, I've heard people say that. Like, well, I need to be in there so, you know, all this one-mindedness. Yes, man. I need to be in there to be Satan's friend. All right. So, not, not, not the best idea. All right. Anytime you bring the devil into the equation, never good. Ever. You know. So, we got to come up with a different thing for that. I don't know, like Jesus' other right-hand guy. I don't know what, but not devil's advocate. So, um, you know, but there can be some really bad motives. And I've seen bad motives for why people want to be in leadership. They feel entitled to it, or they've been around long enough, or they've got thoughts, or whatever else. And uh, those things aren't necessarily going to be good because the motive is seen here. It's not about recognition. It's not about title. It's not about getting respect. It's not about control. It's not about any of those things. See, there's a big difference between biblical eldership and religious managers. And, and, and again, the thing we always want to see protected in a local church is that we're not developing religious managers, but we're unleashing biblical elders that are willingly pastoring, that are eager to serve, that are examples to people. I, I, I tell my kids uh, to, to look at the eldership of our church, and, and, and I want to be able to say clearly uh, to my kids, of every one of them, if you if you look at their life and you model what you see, you'll do well. Right? That's the the ultimate thing for me. It's like if I can look at our leaders and say, if you if you imitate what you see, you're going to do well. That's a healthy biblical elder, where their motives are set in right ways for right things because they want Jesus to get the credit. And so it's important to understand that they are motivated not by position, not by power, not by say so not by checks and balances even. They're motivated by wanting to serve, wanting to invest, wanting to be involved. Next, what the New Testament says is that these individuals are to be qualified according to Jesus. That brings us back to Titus chapter 1. He says there in verse 5, Be appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gets into, well, what are those elders supposed to look like? He says, if anyone is above reproach, right, cannot have blame cast against them. They are the husband of one wife, no sister wives, bad, all right? Um, girlfriend on the side, bad, all right? One woman man, that's what it says literally, a one woman man. His children are believers and not open to charges of debauchery or insubordination, at least prolonged. Um, there's always going to 
be in subordination with the kids somewhere because they're kids and sinful and need Jesus. All right, so um, verse 7, he goes on, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Again, he sandwiches it. He says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, not a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All of those qualities are the street cred of an elder. Right? And are we looking for perfection in that? Obviously not. We're a church of imperfect people redeemed by a perfect God. So, of course, we're not looking for perfection in that. But what we are saying is these should be generally true of those who are elders within the church. And so this is no small thing. We, we take this uh, seriously. I mean, really seriously, as you'll hear in a little while, I hope, um, maybe next week, uh, the, 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 the methods that we employ to try to really understand those qualities are huge to us. Huge. And so we don't just blow this off and go, yeah, that's nice, let's move on. No, we say, really, this is to be true of an elder. And, and, and what this does, not only does it help the elder, because again, ultimately, I, I think the heart of the elder is to be a model. It's what I just said. So I can have my kids look at a Steve Mount and say, if you live like Steve, you're going to do well. Right? If you look at his family, you look at his marriage, you look at his kids, you look at how he handles life, you're going to do well. You look at how he handles some of his mistakes in a godly way, you're going to do well. Because again, it's not perfect, but generally true. See, that example thing is huge. The other part why this is such a big deal as elders have to live up to a certain standard um, simply to protect the credibility of the church, right? As soon as the community hears, oh, that church has an elder, but he's uh, had an affair and he's done this and he's done that and he's all these, you know, his reputation is shot and that gives a reputation to the church at large, right? It doesn't just affect that individual, it affects the church. People go, oh, that church is milk toasty, that church doesn't take sin seriously, that church will put anybody in leadership, that affects the reputation of the church. And so these qualities are important. That means Jesus wants people that are qualified to be elders. As we go on, we see also that those that are to be elders are those who are teachable and gifted to teach on behalf of Jesus. Titus 1.9 goes on to say that this elder, this overseer, this pastor, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicted. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, it says they must be able to teach. What this means is elders in the church must really understand the glory of the grace of the gospel of Christ. And then from that, all other doctrine flows. But they have to understand that because here's what's always going to be true in the local church. You're going to have fundamentally two different ends of the spectrum at work. One end of the spectrum is license-based that says, I'm saved by grace, anything counts, I do what I want, and the elders have to say, hey, we love you, we care about you, the gospel has freed you from those activities, please, you need to stop because it's unhealthy for you, it doesn't glorify God, man, live in the power of grace that can overcome, that's what elders need to say to that end of the spectrum, live in the gospel that frees you to obey and to serve and to find joy in Jesus, not in other things, not in idols, right? So they're going to say that to the licensed crowd. At the same time, there's another crowd in the church. It's the legalist crowd. 
And the legalist crowd, they start to forget the gospel. And they start to think about the law more than the gospel. It's more about works. And they judge others. And they kind of have this attitude that says, we've arrived and the rest of them have not. And the elders need to look at them and say, hey, I love you. I care about you. You're not living in the glory of the gospel of Christ. You're living in the works of the law. You've adopted Moses. And you've forgotten Jesus a little bit in that. We need to bring you back to center to live in the gospel. It says you stand in Christ, not in your efforts. Right? So that's why Paul says they have to be prepared to instruct in sound doctrine and deal with those who contradict. Contradiction is always going to come from both sides. And elders need to teach to the, to, to the center of, of Christ, of the gospel, and how then all biblical life flows from the gospel. Right? So, so that's their role, to teach according to that. And if anything, to equip the church as a group of missional theologians by grace. So that's a, that's a lot so far for them to do. But, but we hold this as dear. We hold it as dear as a church because it is important to Jesus. From there, I want to go a step deeper. How do Jesus' elders lead? How do they lead? First of all, they lead by humble example. Right? That's what it says again in Peter, not domineering. Right? You don't dominate the congregation. Your examples. Here's what, one thing I can guarantee you. I've watched it in action too much to have any other opinion. Uh, influence will always beat control. Influence always beats control. And if elders then try to control, they will fail. If they seek to influence through grace, through godliness, through biblicism. That's what Jesus is looking for, and so that's how they're to lead. Another thing that we really believe as a church, how do Jesus' elders lead? They lead as a plurality. A plurality. Go back to Titus 1.5. This is why I left you behind in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. Uh, this is where we look at this and we say, uh, the eldership of a church is a group of equals. There isn't some hierarchy within the eldership. There's just not. They're a group of equals. They sit at a round table. It's like King Arthur, man. That's how it works. It's the knights of the round table. It's the elders of the local church. They're a plurality. Now, in that plurality, it doesn't mean that it's all uniformity. They don't all think the same way. They don't all have the same gifting, the same heart, the same areas of emphasis. But if they're biblically qualified with the spirit of eldership, when they're together, then they're honing and shaping and encouraging each other and challenging each other. It's like a microbody, right? Where you have all the gifts and skills and, and areas of emphasis that come together and, and, and make the whole stronger. And what you see as the pattern of the New Testament is that local churches were always elders, plural, in one church. It wasn't there was a senior elder and then others. It just didn't work that way. It was a plurality. For us in this plurality, here's something that makes some people choke. I get it. As a plurality, we seek to operate in a spirit of unanimity. You're going, great, plurality, unanimity. I need like a dictionary. All right, so... Um, what that means is as the elders make decisions, it's 100% agreement or the decision isn't made. 100% agreement or the decision isn't made, and we keep praying, keep fasting, keep discussing, keep sifting scripture until we come to 100% agreement. 
Now, I know some of us, we go, we live in the real world, man. How, do, how does that happen? Well, this goes back to a belief that Jesus really is the senior pastor and that his intentions for the church need to be realized. Right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is to be the driving attitude in a plural eldership that makes decisions with 100% agreement. And some of you will say, that's not possible. And let me just tell you this. I've lived it for two years with some of the hardest environments ever faced in a church, and I watched 100% agreement for two years. It does work when this attitude is true. Now, when this attitude isn't true, you have problems. That's true. And so then we create mechanisms to solve problems. But that doesn't mean that that's what God wants for sure. It just means we get real human and try to solve the problems. Now, again, for other things, I don't think you need to have 100% agreement. Other organizations, institutions, groups, nonprofits, whatever, but in a local church, we look and go, boy, this is the spirit to have. This is the thing to maintain. And, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you'll have the whole group going one direction, one person going another direction. You keep working on it for weeks or months. And then eventually that one person, as they're praying and working and everybody's praying and working, it kind of does this. And sometimes the whole group goes to the same position as the one. They go, yep, that's what the Spirit was like. It just took time. Other times it's the other way. just depends. But we look at that and we go, man, that is way more valuable to the health and vitality of a church than anything else. And you see that at work even in the book of Acts where they had this big debate. Now, I want you to understand, with this idea of a group working together 100% agreement, that doesn't mean there isn't debate or disagreement. If you have any sense that says, oh, I mean, so everybody's just a yes guy in the room. No. That is not true. Uh, I've, I've been through meetings that go hours and hours and hours where people get up, walk around the table, sit down, steam pops out their ears, right? Like that, right? I've been in those. Um where decisions go on for weeks or months, a year. But the commitment is we're going to keep praying, we're going to keep fasting, we're going to keep working, we're going to keep looking until Jesus brings us together. And you see that again in Acts 15, where they had a big issue that they had to work through. But eventually, after much debate, the Holy Spirit brought them to one mind. See, to do this, not only do you have to have the right attitudes of Philippians 2, you have to really believe Jesus is involved in this church. You do. You have to really believe the Spirit has a, a, a one plan as a leadership works on an issue. And so, for us, we've just simply embraced a spirit of unanimity. And if you have more questions about that, again, go online tomorrow, look at the document toward the end. We have a, a section that deals with that, and, and you know not only why we believe it to be the New Testament model, but why we think it works. Uh, and why it's healthy. So, elders are to be these things. Next, uh, as far as uh, how do elder, uh, Jesus' elders lead, uh, they're involved with people as shepherds. They're actually involved. In other words, what we're saying is elders aren't just people that sit on a board, come together m- once a month, look at a profit and loss statement, and look at an agenda that they didn't even write, and go, how should we decide? That's not h- how we will envision eldership here in our church. What we'll say is that elders are really involved, are really contributing, 
really interacting with people, really involved in ministry. Uh, they're, they're here all day on Sunday. They're involved in another group in the middle of the week. They put in extra hours doing other things. They come to every elder meeting. We pray, we fast together, those kinds of things. Right? So they have to be involved. They're not just decision makers. They are our invested people who, therefore, because they're invested, are called to make some decisions. Another thing about elders is that they are submitted to the eldership at large. They're submitted to the eldership at large. I've written emails to our elders, and I've said this, I am so happy that myself and my family are under your leadership. I've written that more than once. I, I'm so thankful that I am submitted as a family to the eldership of Redemption Church. And, and that's true for every elder. Every elder is still submitted to the whole and under that umbrella of care and under that umbrella of investment. Uh, and so, again, it, this this plural thing still even for the individual because at the end of the day I'm still going to be a member that has shepherds that care for me and my family right and, and so that's also a part of how this works and then understand that the eldership as a whole is and, and has individuals too is soberly accountable to Jesus soberly accountable Hebrews thirteen seventeen. the end of that it says well, actually, it starts out and says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. James 3, 1. Dear brothers and sisters, uh, not let many of you become teachers in the church, for those of us who teach will be judged more strictly. I, I can tell you, we, we have, over the long course of time as we were working through all of this, and as we do some of our eldership discovery stuff, there's a big issue brought up about this because we really, really do believe that one day uh, we're going to stand before Jesus, look him eye to eye, and he's going to say, why did you do that? Why did you do this? What was the motive there? He sees us perfectly and purely and completely. He's going to know every kind of intention we had and as, as we led. And so all the more we take this as a very serious thing where we go, we don't want to take it lightly. We're no, we know we're going to have to give an account. So that's a big deal. I think so much so that elders really shouldn't look at things and say, well, how do we lead well? I don't think that should be the big question. I think the big question for biblical elders is, how can we be led well? That's the real issue. How can we be led well? Because if we're not led well, we'll lead, but there's no telling how. And then one day we'll stand before Jesus and he'll say, hey, let's have a talk, bro. What's up? Why this? Why that? So, it's a weighty thing. It's a serious thing. But that's, that's New Testament eldership. And once you understand all of that, then what elders do makes a lot more sense. Once you understand that who they are to be is a pretty substantial thing. Pretty heavy, weighty, important. Should be protected and guarded. Once you get that, why do elders in the church exist? Real quick list. Elders exist to pray and promote the word, receive and distribute funds, resolve doctrinal conflict, provide guidance and protection, lay hands on the sick with prayer, admonish, encourage, and help with patience, appoint elders and train future leaders, protect, rebuke, and remove fellow elders, possess authority and expect accountability from God and Jesus, partner with uh, and oversee deacons, and uh, there are then unique elders who lead, preach, and teach well. And they're the ones that are financially supported. Those are just examples of what we see leaders doing in the New Testament. 
right? Those are just the things that we, we see tags to that that they seem to do in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that our elders are going to do all those things, anything else, but it gives you a sense in the New Testament of the function. The function. And so again, that's why we take it serious. That's why we want you to know the seriousness of all of it as a church. Right? Because it's a big deal. Now, some people will say, well, why do we pay some elders, right? And I kind of mentioned that earlier. Why do we pay some elders? Well, uh, under this, it's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It says, elders who lead well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you must not muzzle the ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, it says, those who work deserve their pay. Now, for us as a church, we look at all elders being equal, all elders being the same. Therefore, paid elders don't have more authority. Paid elders don't have more say-so. Paid elders don't have more control. Paid elders are supported or paid because of three things. They lead well, especially in preaching and teaching. We free them up to do those things. So we call these firsts among equals. So the elders are equal. The first among equals just means they're freed up to think about it a little bit more, to execute things a little bit more rapidly, to have skill sets or gifts that fit with being supported in that way. They're not more special. All right? They're not like, oh, well, the pastors are the really special elders, and then you have the other elders. All the elders are important. All the elders are critical. Some are paid. For us as a church, we call those pastor elders. So everybody's an elder, but the paid ones we just call pastor elders to kind of keep it simplified. And so that's why we pay them. We pay them for this. We don't just simply pay them because they may have skills that are outside of this. No, really, it's skills related to leading a church well, skills related to preaching and teaching well. That's why we do that. And understand, for us as a church, with our pastor elders, ours function way more like R2-D2 than anything else, all right? Or like a Swiss Army knife, you know? In other words, you might look and go, well, Ryan, he is our pastor of worship and communication. Sure. Um, if you think that's all Ryan does, no. You know what I mean? In other words, Ryan is a pastor elder. And he has some areas of skill that if I grabbed this and got here and did this, uh-huh, party on, bro, at another church. All right, so, um, would not play, would not fly, right? So, but, but th- th- those are skills that he has, but really, when Ryan approaches everything he does, he looks first and foremost and says, what is best for Redemption Church? Not the ministries that I oversee. Scott Thompson, same thing. You go, well, that's the pastor of youth. Once again, no, Scott is a pastor in our church. And his area of focus, in part, is youth, but not the only focus. Right? So Swiss Army Nines, R2-D2, many things coming together for the good of the church. So that is eldership. Now, I, uh, I could go on for another 45 minutes, but I'm going to stop. Um, so we're, we're partway through this whole thing. And, and yet I think it's a good place to stop because I think it's a good place for you to go, I need to absorb a little bit what this is. Here, here's, here's my ultimate heart behind all of this. Again, like I said, a little bit more of a teaching morning, less of a normal preaching morning. But I, I, if there's any big walk away, uh, it, it's, it's, I hope you know the heart of the leadership here at Redemption is to go, Jesus, what did you say? What did you say? What does your word say? What have you revealed to us? If there's anything I hope you were drowned in this morning, it was the Bible. Because that's where we're looking. We're not looking and going, well, how do we do it in, in the United States government? You know, we, that works well for us, doesn't it? Um, 
right? I mean, honestly, like, we're going to get there. People are like, well, what about checks and balances and all of that? I'm like, we're watching that work now. That isn't working so good, you know? And so uh, there's something better than that even, where the check and the balance is far superior to anything that we human beings can come up with, right? It's prescribed in the Bible. It's going to be awesome, right? So we're going to be looking more at that and what it means to be a member as that works with what we're talking about, what it means to be a deacon, what, how that works with what we're talking about. So that'll be next week. But again, I, I hope and I pray that the walkaway that you receive today is we believe Jesus has given us the way in which to do church, in which to be church, in which to live out as the church. And we want to honor him in those things. As a unified body, one mind, one heart, one spirit, contending for one gospel, for our one Lord, our one Savior, who is Jesus. Uh, let's pray together. Jesus. I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word. I mean, honestly, if there's anything that's just true to today, it was just like, man, to look at your word, to look at your word, to look at your word. Um, I, I, I love your word even when I don't love your word. Um, I, I look at, at being uh, an elder pastor within a church, and I, I found myself at times looking going, man, those standards... I, I, I don't know if I am even at all remotely close to some of the great things I see of what an elder is to be. But I thank you that by your grace you continue to groom and teach and shape. And thank you you're doing that with a collective group. And Man, we want to honor you, Jesus, in what we do and how we do it and why we do it. We don't want to simply look and say what's functional. We do want to look and say what is biblical. And so continue to teach us as a church. Um, in your ways and in your word for your glory. We thank you in your awesome name. Amen.